Dear friends, welcome to another Alpha Bunga Bunga. We hope this episode finds you well. We hope you're taking care of yourselves, locked away wherever you might be. Uh, other than maybe our listeners in Sweden, who I think maybe aren't as quite locked away as uh, as other people are. Uh, hiya, Swedes. Enjoy your enjoy your freedom, <laughs> guys. Uh, what what kind of social activities are you are you partaking in during this quarantine? Because uh, my mind so far have extended to these to to virtual pub quizzes every Friday. I did one for my brother's birthday last night. Yeah, that sounds 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 good. Um, I yeah, think it's legitimate to do based. for your brother's birthday, but otherwise, I'm trying to avoid that kind of so-called social participation. <laughs> That's good. It that. kills sociability like once and for all. Well, what what else what else do you get if you don't have parasocial? um contact like that you you know just have talking over skype with with friends to record a podcast which isn't enough it's not if, enough for anyone maybe if zoom didn't exist um the rebellion would have happened already still got skype though so maybe if skype maybe didn't exist the rebellion would not would happen <laughs> yeah so, if, if that's, Alex, that's a little bit like a kind of anti-consumerist take like you know if the people didn't have all these baubles and consumerist <laughs> joys they would have actually been communist so it's yeah it's zoom zoom is oppressing the masses um, exactly repressive tolerance of uh of zoom um I, i'm actually Red doing I'm, I'm doing another, zoom. yeah i'm doing another quiz tonight which actually i'm running this one and uh and, and it's podcast style with me interviewing people about topics and i'm calling it alex quizza quizza and that's not even a joke um i've become no i'm not i'm not laughing because it's not a joke and it's not (laughs) um but last night i mean just to show you how on brand i am all the fucking time uh last night we we, my brother invited various different friends to uh pick a topic each and everyone had to you know come up with five different questions based on that on the theme that they picked and you know there's a whole range of different things mine um i stayed on brand and i did one about silvio berlusconi so i had five questions and i figured out you know do you guys will you guys know the answer to these um if i read them out maybe not but go on no yeah okay all right so uh silvio worked on a cruise ship in the 1960s what was his job he was a piano player singer yeah, yeah, he was like yeah. Uh, an entertainer. Yeah, he was a crooner. Like a red, he was a, a crooner. I accepted entertainer as one of the answers, though singer crooner was uh, was probably the most accurate answer. But yeah, um, what was Silvio's first pol- political party called? I give a multiple choice just to kind of confuse people. But um, Bella Italia, Popolo della Libertà, Forza Italia, or Bello e Libero, being beautiful Forza and free. Italia. The last one. Yes. That's, yeah. yeah, Forza Italia. Yeah. Yeah, Popolo della Libertà was was later on. Um, and then, uh, right, so the question three was, which European statesperson did Berlusconi call an unfuckable fat ass? Easy, <laughs> easy. Madame Merkel. Madame Merkel, yeah, Frau Merkel, exactly. Uh, horrible. Um, one, instead of invading Iraq, Berlusconi suggested to George W. Bush what alternative? It's a bit of a trick. Oh, he... It was something about go, going there and... 
just having a good time of, in some way. I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> you think so, but no. No, apparently um, he had... I think this obviously only came out afterwards, but he suggested to him, because he didn't really want to go along with the war, but then allowed, the, of course, the US to use the army bases. So anyway, um, what he actually suggested was he tried to talk to Gaddafi to accept Saddam in exile there so that Saddam would leave, uh, the idea being no that Saddam way. would leave without a war and then would go take exile in, in Libya. I think Gaddafi wasn't uh, on board with it or in, at any rate, it obviously didn't happen, as we know. Um, but yeah, a little bit of, little bit of uh, random Berlusconi trivia there. Yeah. Um, and maybe of some political import, you know, I mean, obviously if it had come off. Uh, right, then the final question was, according to Silvio, where did the phrase bunga bunga come from? It's a joke. Like you end up on a you end up on a um, island and you're going to be eaten with cannibals, and it's a Scotsman and a somebody else, an Irishman, and they like put pineapples up your ass and this and that. But it was I think <laughs> I don't it was think that's exa- I don't think that's exactly it. I don't think that's exactly. It. But yeah, it was basically right. I mean, it's basically it based on a joke. I don't know if it was Gaddafi. Yeah. I mean, it was certainly a joke which he'd heard about whatever kind of some kind of racist. Is it joke really? About so African it's that joke. Tribesmen. Is that? Yeah. The- no, basically, the, 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 Afri- the African bunga. tribesmen go, do you, want, do you want bunga bunga or do you want death? And the first guy goes, oh, I'll have bunga bunga. And then they um, sexually have their way with the captive uh, person and then kill him. And then the other guy goes, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take death. He's like, okay, but bunga bunga first. Ha 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 ha. It's not even a very good joke, man. Um, yeah, so that's it. That's, that's supposedly where it comes from. I don't know. Is there a Gaddafi connection to it? Do all roads, all roads lead to uh, Tripoli? No, they do not. Only the roads okay. that lead from Tripoli are also lead, lead to Tripoli. It's dialectics. That's not dialect. Anyway, so... Uh, this no, is the... for Bunga Bunga, all roads lead to Rome, as they exactly. always have. So there you go. Right, there we go. Well, we're, we're, give, we're giving a new meaning to the phrase death by Bunga Bunga, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's actually pretty good. Is it? Is it? Um, <laughs> shall we get? Shall we get started? Shall we get started with the actual? Uh, yeah. Main main yeah, course here. Uh, right. It's three courses uh, because it's three articles. Uh, the regular listeners will know the deal. Hello to new subscribers. Uh, I guess I should explain what the format is. It's very simple. We each bring a different article to discuss. It's a bit like a show and tell thing. Remember those from school? And we introduce the article and discuss it. We try to bring them all based on the same theme. And because uh, in our current times, there is only one theme that exists in the world, which is coronavirus. These ones will be about coronavirus, its impacts and the politics of it. Um, so let's get started. Uh, George is doing the first one. George, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I picked a um, <clears throat> uh, an article by the Financial Times editorial board. So this was uh, the 3rd of April. Uh, virus lays bare the fr- the frailty of the social contract. So in this, they argue that radical reforms are required to forge a society that will work for all. And it's worth, I mean, it's a short editorial. It's worth it's worth reading if you haven't already. I think m- many listeners will have, have got wind of this on either by reading it directly or seeing people discuss it. But I think it's an important one to, to go through, even if relatively quickly. Um, so the article begins... If there is a silver lining to the COVID-19 pandemic, it is that it's injected a sense of togetherness into polarized societies. But the virus and the economic lockdowns needed to combat it also shine a glaring light on existing inequalities and even create new ones. 
So they continue, as Western leaders learnt in the Great Depression and after the Second World War, to demand collective sacrifice, you must offer a social contract that benefits everybody. And then, despite inspirational calls for national mobilisation, we're not really all in this together. Those in low-wage jobs can still work. Um, those, sorry, those in low-wage jobs who can still work are often risking their lives as carers and healthcare support workers, but also as shelf stackers, delivery drivers, and cleaners. So it's really it's a it's a very important article. I think they address a lot of things which the left has been talking about recently they also pick up some points around underfunded public services um young and old people being the biggest losers of the lockdown and use a lot of uh, weave this in with a lot of now more than ever like war against the virus we need to pull through this all together show a bit of um a bit of solidarity or a bit of uh, stiff upper lip um and so basically the conclusion is is as follows you know to win the peace after the coronavirus radical reforms reversing the prevailing policy direction of the last four decades will need to be put on the table. Governments will have to accept a more active role in the economy. They must see public services as investments rather than liabilities and look for ways to make labour markets less insecure. Redistribution will again be on the agenda, the, agenda, the privileges of the elderly and wealthy in question. So I guess the first thing on this is whether it's just a cynical ploy um, by the FT to take over Jacobins and Navarra's audiences, because so much of this could could have been found in in those publications. It's really striking how um, quickly they reach for a lot of these kind of ideas around quite fundamental reforms and really tacking it or tacking away from neoliberalism into some new um, some new areas. So yeah, I mean that's why I picked it because I thought yeah we we should really discuss this. Because I think it also touches on some things we talked about in a couple of previous episodes as well. It's world historic. I mean, as a you know, and insofar as the Financial Times is one of the papers of record um, globally as well, not just. I mean, it's the kind of the newspaper of the capitalist class at the global level, not just for um, not just for Britain. It's an astonishing, not least also because it's not an article; it's an editorial written by the editorial board. So it's the collective expression of a particular viewpoint by a very influential paper um and the most i mean aside from the fact like um like you say george that it um gives voice to and expresses um themes that have been common on the left um it's also remarkable because it's precisely these things that the f um cutting against what the ft has championed without any admission whatsoever of any kind of liability or accountability for themselves. So the idea of public investments as liabilities, that's something which it would be common to any um, FT editorial demanding um, budget cutbacks and um, austerity for the last 10 years. And not, you know, the hostility to now they're suggesting that we need redistribution wealth taxes, things that the FT has also been hostile to. Mm. So the, um, the unwillingness to admit fault is really... Um, is really striking and repellent. And on the flip side, I think the fact that they've absorbed, like you say, the kind of terrain occupied by um, Navarra Media um, and Jacobin also, I think, tells you something else, which is the essential conservatism or, you know, kind of, um, yeah, conservatism and essential kind of centrism of those kinds of positions that um, they're now... The FT is kind of rapidly moving to a new centre ground um, and the Jacobin and Navarra and etc. are all going to be left um, scrabbling to find themselves to express some kind of new 
something in that terrain because that's how they've defined themselves for so long. I don't think necessarily that would be the case. I mean, obviously, you oppose neoliberalism, and then when neoliberalism ends, you move on and you tack further leftwards, if you want to put it that way. Um, and I've seen kind of two different responses to to the FT. I mean, some on the left celebrate it as if it's vindication of, of the left's position, which I think is um, a sort of misunderstanding of what's going on there. I mean, capitalism has always been flexible and has oriented towards the times, especially when it needs to take counter-crisis measures um, and things which were previously thought unthinkable suddenly become plausible. I mean, that has happened through so many different changes in different capitalist regimes that, you know, it shouldn't be any surprise. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think it should be rejected or i mean i'm totally fine with welcoming that i think probably the shift to a more public capitalism as opposed to a kind of a private moment something that's probably to be welcomed i think it's probably a little bit more of a i mean maybe it's a question um whether i think it's a bit more mm. of a fruitful terrain for the left than moments of uh where the state takes no responsibility um for outcomes than, than one where it does i guess that's a question right it, what what's the response going to be um of the left to i mean if and this is this is basically the the thesis we we advanced in the ideologies of the near future episode if the center ground is essentially state capitalism <clears throat> you know high public expenditure high public investment um that kind of just complete ditching of of thatcherism then what does does the left do does the left say uh okay this is an opportunity to, to to go further and to demand you know real um really radical measures or is it a critique on the basis of um i guess a kind of left technocracy or this this idea of kind of technocratic do-gooderism that we we explored a little bit or progressive technocracy is lots of potential ways to frame it which is essentially not saying that it's it's a political critique but there's there's not enough um I guess equality, or there's some failing in the way that it's being implemented, rather than it being a, a kind of problematic program in the first place. Right. I would. I mean, I think it. There's another kind of dynamic, which is I think that capitalism is um, being reorganized, and its tremendous kind of fragility has been exposed, obviously, as a result of the virus. And I'm sure this is something we'll return to and talk about much more. Um, but given that capitalism is reorganizing, then the question is, um, and, you know, spontaneously and out of necessity, it's having to reorganize itself as a social system. Who does the left speak for? Does it speak for a social movement seeking to steer and politically shape and reorganize capitalism into a new into a new social form, or is it simply giving voice to something that is entirely internal to capitalism itself? And it seems to me, given that the FT now has annexed that left terrain, effectively, um, it seems to me it's the latter, right? That effectively the left has been expressing um, the need for a reorganization of capitalism. And um, what, what we'll end up with is a more technocratic, managerial what I've called elsewhere COVID corporatist model of capitalism and whether or not that's better for the left or not is, um, you know, is an open question, but it partly, it's partly left down to political agency. Um, but I don't think, I don't think we can expect much from those leftists who are angling for jobs in a newly expanded state sector. 
No, I think that's right. Yeah. You end up with a, well, I, what I think I'm calling the, the well-actually left, which is to say that a left which is intellectually and politically completely parasitic on the new state capitalism. Uh, not not just, not, I don't, and I don't mean that parasitic in the sense of, you know, getting sinecures and jobs and whatnot. I mean, intellectually parasitic in that it doesn't express any political and intellectual independence. So yes, state capitalism, yes, we welcome this, but hey, look, maybe the impacts of it don't fall equally enough all across the population, or maybe women are left out here, or uh, these minorities are left out here. But basically, no substantial critique of the fundamentals of, of the kind of new political economic regime. Basically, everything's okay, but what you've this implementation of it is just not quite fair, um, mm. which, which would be of a piece with most of the left, especially the center left's uh, track record over the past 20 years, which has also been to be effectively left neoliberals being being in of trying to be sort of in-house critics to neoliberalism as much as yeah. they wouldn't conceive of themselves as such, but to basically yeah. say, yes, you know, flexibilization, okay, but what about these effects? They're unfair. Um, we need to have a little bit more state spending to fix the you know fix the downsides of of a, of a free market system. Um, hmm. I mean, I'm, and, I'm I'm quite so gone. Well, no, I think that, that I mean, that's it. I, it's basically that sort of relationship where it doesn't really offer a fundamental critique, neither to capitalism, nor even to the specific regime uh, in place, but really just says, can you just make sure that you implement this in a smarter way, listen to the best experts, or uh, make sure you act in a moral way that you that that the policies mm. are, are fair, basically. So yeah, I mean, but this is this is the opportunity that it presents is that if you can get beyond that critique based on implementation, then it's it's necessary to to critique the whole project and to say that even a state, even a more redistributive um, state capitalism, um, that's not that's not what we want. We want political power. We don't want that kind of redistribution um, only. We want you know we, we want um, you know we want self government. We want a bit more. Which, yeah, which I think is more um I think there's more evidence of that in or the I suppose the reasons to be hopeful isn't so much the fact that the FT is now sounding like Jacobin or Navarra. Um it would be more I would more take kind of heart and interest in the stories of um wildcat strikes, um, of workers refusing to um uh, in or the case I think it was in Detroit where workers effectively uh, retooled the factory. I think it was a General Motors factory, in, in fact, to um, start producing ventilators rather than the machine tools or cars that they were doing beforehand. Um, and effectively, management went along with their decision. Um, workers um, enforcing their own rules or protesting against the failure of management to offer them uh, safe working conditions in cramped warehouses and supermarkets. Um, and I think also the boost to the status of labor, as opposed to the um, the status of merit of uh, the kind of the values of meritocracy and entrepreneurialism that have been the dominant cultural values of the last 30 years. So if those if we see a, um, a greater willingness for self-assertion among workers and perhaps a greater um, cultural um, elevation of the um, need for dignity, autonomy and control in the workplace and the devaluation of meritocracy, then I think those will be positive things much more than um, the FT and uh, Jacobin scrabbling for um, scrabbling for the new centre ground.
Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the point that you made about the FT not not owning up to this and not accepting any responsibility when they say reversing the prevailing policy direction of the past four decades, that's that kind of parenthetical comment. That's like that's this this economic structure which you defended like completely um, without base, almost without um, without qualification. And now it's it's you've you've kind of changed tack. So. I don't think you're dishonest. ever gonna. Yeah, I don't think you're ever gonna get any accountability or any reckoning of people who are now saying that they've all, all they've always been in favour of redistribution. They've always thought this is a good idea. I think that, but it's well, you know, that that was never going to happen because they're. It's also a question about whether we want to be holding the FT to account. I mean, <laughs> whether whether that the energy should be exerted well, no, in that direction. Not not the FT specifically, but as a general principle of democratic politics. That you know, public um, that these such views should be held to account. So I mean, it's not specifically the FT, but in general, there should be accountability. And the FT has been tremendously politically influential over the last forty years. So we should hold them to account for sure. Okay, so let's move on to the next article. Uh, the next one's mine. Uh, it's actually a, a blog post. Wouldn't normally go for a blog post, but it was shared around so much by a lot of. Um, I don't know, left intellectuals, I guess, uh, that I thought was maybe worth discussing. It came out a little while ago, maybe, what is that, three weeks ago? Uh, it's called Herd Immunity is Epidemiological Neoliberalism. It was published on the quarantimes.wordpress.com. Um, the main argument is that the UK's initial approach to uh, dealing with COVID as well as the current strategy of Sweden and uh, the strategy which the Netherlands was adopting until relatively recently, um, is uh, neoliberal. So it's it's uh, implementation of some limited social distancing measures, but no lockdown, um, with the idea that instead of trying to avoid people getting the disease and flattening the curve, that people would allow themselves to be infected those people who would need treatment get treated, but eventually uh, immunity would spread throughout the population. Um, we can come to the maybe some of the details of that in a second, but um, I think the, the the article is problematic because, I, I mean, I don't even know whether I should explain more of, about the article um, in terms of what it what the, the idea is there. But basically, as listeners can probably imagine, the idea of epidemiological neoliberalism is basically, well, every man for himself, the state washes its hands of responsibility for taking measures to stop the spread of the disease. Um, and that people, you know, it's every man for himself, basically, um, which sounds plausible, um, except for the fact that th there's a couple of holes in this. So the one, one hole is that it argues that new, this neoliberal approach, of course, has happened in the most neoliberal uh, Western eco economy or European economies, uh, the UK and the Netherlands, and then but then it realizes that Sweden has done it too, and so says, oh, but actually Sweden's a model of social democracy. So how's that possible? Oh, but Sweden's also been doing neoliberalism, so that makes sense. Then it seems a bit contradictory. Um, I, I think that argument that it was the most neoliberal economies which implemented this uh, this approach doesn't exactly hold. Um, and then the second uh, hole in it is that it tries to make this argument that by uh, pursuing the herd immunity approach, effectively every man for himself, it, it's the government not taking responsibility. But arguably, you could say that the, 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 the widespread use of lockdowns is also the government not really accepting responsibility. It's treating the disease as a natural 
phenomenon about which they could have done little, uh, and therefore lockdown is the only solution, uh, which is probably not the case. I mean, it's a fact of the lack of preparation that has been done. And this is something that we discussed in in the last episode with John McAfee, uh, who is a, if you haven't heard that yet, it's uh, it's wild. Um, John McAfee is a, a COVID skeptic. He doesn't think it's a big deal and that people should just uh, get on with their lives. And this is just a big ploy by government and the media to make people scared and to take more power. Um, I don't buy that. But uh, I think one point is that to lock everyone down is to basically say, well, we didn't take the measures that would have been necessary beforehand. We were worried about a pandemic for two decades, did nothing about it, and now it's happening and that our pan- uh, you know, a lockdown is the only possible response. Well, maybe now it is because the preparations weren't made beforehand, but that doesn't mean that that would that, you know, if the if governments had started responding to it earlier, that maybe lockdown wouldn't be necessary to the same degree mm-hmm. that, that it is now. Yeah, I mean it it is it is quite striking how the only two options which have been rendered possible are either lockdown or herd immunity, both of which are not really collective. The, the lockdown, as you said, is it, it is a weird way of basically saying, OK, we're going to impose these rules and then whatever happens is is well, your fault because you haven't immunity, been following. Herd immunity is collective, though, I mean, by definition. But it's uh, I mean, I guess the way that this article unpacks it is saying, well, there's no um uh, there's no coordinated approach. It's a disaggregated. Uh, if it's collective, it's dis- disaggregated because there's nobody um, regulating or or doing anything. It's a it's a laissez-faire, social Darwinist, as the article puts it, approach. Because you just let you just let the logic of the market or the logic of um, inter- of individual interactions govern the outcome. So it's produced in a way that might be individually rational but collectively irrational. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think it, it. I mean, the reason. I mean, you know, I agree with what you said, Alex. That lockdown is also a sign of, um, if, and I think much more, in fact, a sign of political irresponsibility, um, and also, like you say, effectively locking, uh, to coin a phrase, locking into place um, a system for uh, twenty years, which has been founded on um, reorganizing health systems along market lines as well as um, uh, stripping back uh, public investment in um, all sorts of infrastructure and health as well. Um, the other thing there, I mean, the point is there is no way to, um, there is no way to, to defeat the virus without herd immunity. Um, and the only way to get herd immunity is either by vaccination or by um, allow, you know, by ensuring that people build up um, their own res- their resistance. Which, which we and don't so know. Until you have, and the latter, yeah, and the latter well, option is completely unknown. So it's possible yeah. that, that people don't have immunity. So everything is yeah, a, well, just just to say the, everything's a wager. Everything is a suboptimal response right now. No, quite so. So but in the in the interim, while we um, in the interim, while we wait for, um, you know, the question is then while we're waiting for a vaccine, um, there's the trade off as to how far you can, you know, how you manage quarantine and all sorts of different medical interventions traded off against um, the costs, the economic costs, which by all accounts, are going to be tremendous of um, lockdown. And it seems to me this kind of article, this blog post is um, a very, 
a typical expression of a middle class view on this question where um, you get, you know, the kind of um, the lockdown left with supported, um, which expresses this middle class view. You can work from home. You get everything delivered by Deliveroo or Amazon or whatever or Uber Eats. And it's fine. And there's there's something out there called the economy, which um, these ruthless evil capitalists, um, you know, kind of um, are, tr are trying to manipulate and control. And it's a matter of the economy versus um, life, as if everybody could work from home, as if, um, you know, everyone can participate in meetings over Zoom. And that's the content of all work in the productive yeah. economy. Yeah, um, it, it was no interesting, kind actually. Of one of the one of the responses to the FT piece, which we just discussed, George's one, there was a there was a letter uh, published in the in the FT, which I, I actually grabbed because um, I thought it was interesting. He, one of the letters says, "My affluent, expensively educated neighbors." This is a writer, uh, excuse me, a, a reader of the FT writing into. Um, from San Francisco saying, my affluent, exp expensively educated neighbors regard their adherence to the public health protocols almost as an act of civic heroism. They seem only faintly aware that an army of ordinary people from police officers to bank tellers to delivery drivers make their home confinement possible, which I thought exemplified very well what, uh, what you were just saying. Um, so yeah, I think th this idea that the lockdown is both heroic, um, anti-neoliberal, uh, and uh, and a kind of optimal outcome or something is, is 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 weird. On the other hand, I think the idea of rebelling against the lockdown uh, right now, when it's probably the best option in the immediate term, uh, you know, is also kind of probably it's also misguided. Um, so Zizek made a, a similar point whilst um, touching his his face quite frequently in, a, in an interview. Lavoie, you can don't see. touch his face, Lavoie. Yeah, well, he he needs to he needs to learn. But yeah, of course, I think a lot of the a lot of the people who are writing these these kind of articles, not just not just um, the blog that we're discussing, but opinion pieces or lockdown experience pieces more generally, are those who are privileged, who are able to be confined to to quarantine at home and actually have things you know not not like normal but like an extended working from home um period you know if the office is being yeah. refurbished and and there's just some some you know reason why you have to get your groceries delivered from a card rather than going down to the local shop then that's that's the I think a lot of people have, have generalized from from that experience which they've had and thought that's the, the common experience that everybody is having but in fact there's there's not a but also, kind of response to this. The fantasy also that it could actually be extended. So the idea, you know, the lockdown left kind of pressures government. Um, well, just put everyone at home and put everyone on the state payroll. And that's the way to solve this crisis. It doesn't eradicate the virus. So lockdown only delays the spread of the virus. And also you can't actually make it. You can't actually have an entire economy of people who work from home. It's just not possible. So, I mean, I think the, um, you know, the other aspect of this is this vision of the economy as, like I said, as if it's um, something separate from society itself. Um, you know, the process of productive work is actually um, society itself. It's not just the kind of um, the realm of the economy as if the realm is just kind of, um, you know, as if the economy is just stockbrokers gouging us. That's not it at all. And productive work and being, you know, delivering food and, um, I don't know, cleaning stuff and working, even working from home and all that kind of stuff is actually the stuff of society itself. So locking down um, economies on this scale, I mean, they're you know, the economy is vaporizing 
literally, you know, there's like somebody, I think it was Justin um, Morris, the economist said about, he estimated about half a percentage point of GDP for every week, I think it was in America. Yeah. Um, So the economy is literally vaporizing with lockdown. And I have to disagree with you, Alex. I think, I think there are options. Um, even if, you know, belate, even if we could only apply them belatedly now of um, trying to isolate and quarantine the most vulnerable, throwing enormous amounts of resources at them and also at expanding the um, at expanding medical capacity. And it seems to me that's what we should do, because the costs of this of the coming economic crash are going to overwhelm, I think, um, the costs of covid in the long run. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I tend to agree. I think the the main thing is just that the polarization between pro-lockdown and anti-lockdown is the wrong way to think about this. Because Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, because it ends up polarizing between a couple of kind of cranky right-wingers, nut jobs, um, a bunch of, you know, right-wing pro, pro-business types who are like, well, I'm, you know, I'm losing profit. We can't lock down now, which, uh, you know, that just in a very narrow, self-interested way. Uh, and kind of wacko libertarians versus everyone else who then goes, well, if all these wackos are anti-lockdown, that means that lockdown is probably a good idea. Um, and that polarization isn't helpful because it isn't thinking, it isn't even thinking creatively about what solutions are necessary, what's possible, um, what are the risks and costs involved uh, to all of this in the way that you've just uh, spelled out, Phil, um, and not just seeing the economy. Sure, I mean, there's lots of inessential workers, lots of uh, especially middle class professionals uh, who are working from home and uh, and whose jobs obviously have been proven not to be essential. Uh, but many people who are being de facto marched into work because they they have no other option um, and they they need to, yeah. they need to keep going to to keep the economy going. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's quite it's quite a realization uh, that your your job is not essential. Um, as as my mine, mine is but you, you yeah i mean that's that's the reality right you you do realize that you are not i'm speaking about myself here not directly um involved in actually producing or distributing any commodities yeah you know i was just you, about you, to, you do to things cut with you documents. off there. just cut you, you off from the, from the podcast entirely just yeah used i'm not an essential part of the podcast. or distributing you're just <laughs> No, I mean, no, that's right it, Bunga Bunga is essential, though. I'm sure that's true. Culture is essential. That's what people who work in culture industries like to argue. So, um, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's quite striking, I mean, right? Most strikingly, of, of, and, you know, and we've, um, we've talked about this elsewhere, though we haven't um, talked about it on the pod, but um, the fact that both Congress and Parliament have deemed themselves inessential because they decided that they aren't going to sit um, and hold to account the executive in a time of national emergency. So they've basically deemed the fact their jobs as democratically elected representatives to be legislators and to hold the um, hold the executive to account is simply inessential. And that's the most astonishing um, thing of all, I think. And also it's part of the same 40 years of neoliberalism that the VFT was um, uh, cutting against. Um, supposedly, is also this idea of seeing politics itself as effectively inessential, because everything can be left to the spontaneous order of the market. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, maybe we should move on to the third article, which is uh, a little bit more out there. Phil, it's the dessert. Yes. <laughs> so this is a piece in Slate called "We're on the Brink of Cyberpunk" by Kelsey D. Atherton. 
and I came across it on Twitter, um, and I thought it would be, uh, you know, I thought it would be good to throw into the mix because it's um, of a different kind from so much of the other Corona commentary. Um, to get away from, you know, I mean, there's so many kind of um, the latest paper that's been published, these stats, how applicable the statistics in one region, say Wuhan, are as opposed to the statistics coming out of Sweden, as opposed to those coming out of New York, death rates versus um, infection, you know, so many. Uh, so to get away f- a bit from that and to kind of um, cast it um, or to look at it, I suppose, from the perspective, from a more cultural perspective or literary perspective, um I thought I would bring this into the mix. So what it does is it basically talks about how how um, what we're going through at the moment is the dystopia imagined um, in an earlier in an earlier period um, and how much uh, what we're going through with the with lockdown and also um, uh, the disease and responses to it resonate with uh, the dystopias of cyberpunk. And it mentions reminds us all in fact that the original Blade Runner movie directed by Ridley Scott with um, Harrison Ford that came out in the late 70s was it it was set in November 2019 which um, we've passed Um, the future that it the kind of dystopian Los Angeles that it presented to us was in November 2019 but it goes through some other um, through some other dystopias and a few interesting things that it mentions are the um, overwhelming evidence of corporate power in these various um, dystopian um, these various kind of dystopian sci-fi uh, visions either in film or in books um, neuromancer being another one um, and in which there is no existence of politics um, there's no apart from the police to maintain order and typically the police are corrupt or um, ineffectual the other thing that's very interesting though um, is um, something that it mentions is also the fact that the form that resistance takes in these dystopias tends to be direct action. So it's not really collective or political. It's more or um, involving kind of, uh, I don't know, um, uh, built around some kind of clear political principles or um, around some kind of um, clear political organization, but tends to be kind of very small scale or active, activist style um revolt and insurrection and i thought that was really striking and whether the connection between the neoliberal world that we're living in with overwhelming corporate power kind of shriveled centers of political power and at the same time the resistance is also the resistance to that world is also entirely part of it um because it's also to a degree apolitical and if you think about the kinds of um rebels that are portrayed in some of these dystopian scenarios they tend to be either quite hippie-ish or um, kind of, or if they're not, if they're not um, peaceful, they're kind of Bader Meinhofy. Their political principles are all quite obscure. Um, in the background, their organisational structures isn't really um, ever uh, mentioned. You think about, say, I don't know, the rebels in, um, um, say, in um, Children of Men, for instance, or in um, Johnny Mnemonic. Or in um, Blade Runner itself, right? It's kind of a small, isolated group of um, slave androids who have no kind of political um, aim apart from trying to prolong their lives. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. And then just one final point, which is um, the author also mentions in the piece the popularity of steampunk as well. 
and saying that um, so steampunk is um, the kind of uh, idea of uh, mixing a Victorian kind of late 19th century aesthetic with um, uh, technology, more advanced technology than the Victorians had. And what it says, the popularity of steampunk reflects the fact that we're in a second gilded age or we're just exiting a second Gilded Age, because the late 19th century was similar to ours in many respects in terms of the enormous inequalities of wealth, the lavish, um, conspicuous consumption of the privileged, and how there's echoes of that in um, the popularity of steampunk harking back to the previous Gilded Age. Anyway, what did yeah. you guys think of it? No, I thought it was it, it, it made me think about, um, I guess, that point around the absence of politics in in cyberpunk in in general um because this is one of the points that the, the article makes is that that's that's the big difference between a cyberpunk scenario and contemporary life in that you have vast corporate power persistent surveillance life in a time of constant crisis in both cases but it's the painful awareness of politics or and of the presence or deliberate absence of government in daily life that's what distinguishes um today from the cyberpunk dystopia that kind of 80s um feeling and i think it is it is for many people myself included quite clear how technology mediates all of our um social relations day day by day anyway but it's just now so obvious that the only way that we interact with people or one of the only ways is through zoom zoom pub quizzes or you know speaking on skype or things like that so it, it definitely um yeah i think it it sort of hit hit a it has some resonance in saying right what is the um, applicability of cyberpunk to today yeah i i didn't really know what to make of this piece and maybe i'm just not um au fait enough with cyberpunk literature to really uh, and, and other media uh, to really bring but it you've seen I mean, but you've seen the movies i I've mean seen, at I've least seen, some I've of the dystopian seen, I movies seen movies um i've seen a couple of movies <laughs> in my life um like blade runner children yeah. of man sure Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't know what to, what to make of it in terms of our contemporary reality or what it's seen, what it seems to be projecting into the future. Right. Um, because I guess what it would suggest is this kind of state corporate dystopia, right, where state and corporate are hand in hand, uh, which they were in the neoliberal period, but would be maybe even more so um, now with the state that was, assuming more that was direct the authority. Point. Yeah. But I think there's a, it was portraying, so it was, you know, cyberpunk kind of emerged in the early 1980s um, and that it was portraying, it was extrapolating the future. Um, so it's very much a, a genre that was shaped by neoliberalism and portraying a future in which politics um, and the state had kind of been stripped back just to pure enforcement of order. And you had enormous, um, enormous kind of corporate power, like the huge ziggurat corporate headquarters which are portrayed at the start of blade runner um in the opening shot yeah and i think that's that's the the point isn't it that it it, it hits something like cyberpunk as a dystopia hit on something which is now becoming apparent has happened over the past 40 years and that's the hollowing out of the of the state and and its reduction essentially to just constraining people's in this case constraining people's movement so you do see that that big gap i don't think that corporate power really um i mean obviously that in dramatized versions like blade runner of, of of 2019 there's there has to be a kind of an opposition and a and a, a um a single hero who can change things otherwise the i don't know where the dramatic sort of 
tension comes from. But certainly the the absence of of the state in in its ability to solve citizens' problems has been pretty clearly illustrated in, by the past month. I was going to say by the that. past There's several no, years. Past there month. isn't just there aren't there just isn't even politics though. There isn't even corrupt politicians doing you know kind of enforcing corporate orders. It's just completely invisible. Or there isn't kind of caric, uh, you know, kind of there isn't a place for um, for uh, kind of well-meaning, um, limp-wristed liberals to try who are kind of uh, you know um, ineffectually trying to um, resolve problems that require a more radical. So you know, they just none of that even figures in the story. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of monadic, isolated, um, small-scale groups pursuing kind of heroic insurrections. Or and on the other side, just enormous kind of concentrations of economic power and privilege, um, and so and it's in, I mean, it's interesting because I think it does speak to you know they, it is something of the dystopia that we're living through um, to some degree at least. So Los Angeles doesn't in Blade Runner doesn't look like the real Los Angeles, but um, the the neo you know the kind of the state failure that we're seeing, um, particularly in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, speak to that kind of aspect of neoliberalism and the fact that the left itself, you know, in terms of Occupy, anti-globalization, black bloc, um, all of that stuff uh, over the 1990s in particular was very much in keeping with um, the anti or post-political character of the times as well. Yeah, I think... Sorry, go on. Well, no, just... And then there's been a sort of rediscovery of politics in the latter half of the of the 2010s right which now you know yeah, left populism left yeah. populism returned to the party form uh, albeit in kind of modified modified sort of ways um which has now also reached its its tail so yeah depressing uh depressing and and uh, the well i think we maybe leave this episode there um i think there was oh i just just i just had one final point which is doesn't really add to the discussion but just this idea of the (laughs) side bourgeoisie like cyber bourgeois bourgeoisie which is a good a good neologism which i hadn't heard before and i think it's an interesting kind of part of the article talking about this idea of plutocratic insurgency and the wealthy seeking out seeking to sort of carve out de facto zones of autonomy for themselves um precisely by crippling undermining the state's ability to constrain their freedom of action and this i mean that's essentially what's happened that you have an, an yeah. the ultra rich being able to solve this problem for themselves quite easily by decamping to their second third whatever number home which is sufficiently um detached and maybe has a doomsday prepper um kind of yeah, store of, of beans and and um i think it's more than beans there because there was that story in the new york post of all the rich manhattanites who fled yeah. new york to the hamptons <laughs> decamped it's peanut um, peanut butter have... it's you need peanut butter according to john mcafee is the is yeah the yeah but i mean i think yeah they i don't think um, i don't think the rich of manhattan are taking their um guidance from john mcafee on that because some of the stories coming out of this kind of stuff that they took with them to the hamptons and the kind of stuff that they're ordering in to um to that place is also um just it was the Hamptons wasn't it or was it somewhere else anyway wherever they fled to um yeah definitely it's not they're definitely not prepping with um uh, cans of uh, baked beans yeah well uh, speaking of uh, insurrection uh, the last episode there was a lot of talk about people taking arms or rather the disappointment that John McAfee felt and people not having taken up arms against the state uh, during the lockdown. Uh, we are back next week with a free episode in which we also talk about 
taking up arms or rather what are the consequences of not having been armed we're talking to vincent bevins about his new book about the called the jakarta method about cold war violent anti-communism so that's next week uh later on at the towards the end of the following week we have our reading group for patrons ten dollars and up where we will be discussing george what are we discussing so yeah we'll be discussing Evgeny Morozov's Digital Socialism which was in the New Left Review last uh last year so March June 2019 which is a really a really good thing to revisit or to visit um if you haven't haven't read it so we'll, we'll um, yeah. be making that available to uh to the patrons $10 and up uh and uh, we look forward to receiving your questions and comments and points uh for us to discuss uh which will and again that episode will come out right at the very end of the month uh catch you later thanks for listening take care of each other bye bye <laughs>